How we think, feel, and experience the world is a mystery to everyone. What distinguishes our consciousness from AI and machine learning? Leon Mudrick studies high-level cognition and its neural substrates, focusing on conscious experience. She teaches at the School of Psychological Sciences at Tel Aviv University in Israel. At her research lab, her team is currently investigating the functionality of consciousness, trying to unravel the depth and limits of unconscious processing, and also researching the ways semantic relations between concepts and objects are formed and detected. Dr. Liad Mudrik, welcome to the Creative Process and One Planet podcast. Thank you. So, you know, before we go into this, you know, very complex issue of our brains, our, our minds, our consciousness, and you describe what you do at your lab, what you study, perhaps I should direct it to, to yourself, Liad Mudrik, you know, how do you know that you're conscious? We think about this now with the development of AI. How do you know that your consciousness, how do you define your sense of self and your perception? Thank you. It's actually a very interesting question because our own consciousness is something that we as scientists don't quite understand yet. But on the other hand, it's the phenomena that we are most intimately familiar with. So when you wake up in the morning, you don't have to get any proof for being conscious because you simply are. You experience the world, you see how it looks, you taste the taste of the food that you're eating, you see the colors, you smell the smells, you hear the sounds. So as far as I'm concerned, there is nothing to prove about my own consciousness. But then the question becomes way more and more complicated when we look at species or systems that are more distant from us. So are animals conscious? Are fetuses conscious? Is an AI system conscious? You know, these are very, very big questions. And if I go back to you, I have a good enough reason to suppose that you are conscious because I know that I am, and I know it because I feel it, I sense it. And I know that you and I are fairly similar in our build the way our nervous system is built and the way our body functions. So when I connect all these pieces of information, it seems quite reasonable to assume that you are conscious, although I cannot know for sure. As far as I'm concerned, you might be one of these Westworld robots and just behave the way we do. But since to our knowledge, there are no Westworld robots currently alive, then, you know, I have a good enough reason to think that you are conscious. But the problem becomes more and more complicated when we look more distant system. Yes, indeed. And one distinction seems to be just the things that we don't really have control of. I think what we talk about our consciousness as opposed to talking about machine learning, which may be highly intelligent because it's a crowdsourced brain, you know, compound, but it's these things like just our biological processes, our limbic system, things we don't necessarily think about that are not even in our conscious. We define what makes us conscious by things that I feel operate on the unconscious. Like our breathing and these things that we didn't have control of. Our language is an artificial system or the things that we make. Like if we make it out of plastic, we say that's not a conscious thing. It's a, a man-made thing. Yeah, so I think that all these things that you mentioned, like breathing and all the activity that goes on in our body that we don't control and we are often also unaware of, these are all necessary conditions for me to be a conscious creature. If I wouldn't breathe, then yeah, probably wouldn't have any consciousness left, right? Because I wouldn't be alive. But the question is, what is needed over and above 
these necessary conditions that make me a conscious creature. And maybe we should define what we mean when we talk about consciousness. So when I say that I am a conscious creature, I mean that I don't only analyze information about the world or not only even respond to the world, because you can think about, you know, even a thermostat responds to the world. But when I sense the world, I don't only process information, I also have a qualitative experience. Adopting Thomas Nagel's famous, you know, title of his paper, it feels like something, in his case, to be a bat, in our case, to be me. It feels like something to drink coffee, right? So the question is, what allows us as human being, not only to process information, but also to experience it? And this is what we are trying to understand, basically. And I, I should say, I said us as human beings, but I think that animals also have such conscious experience. I believe so too. I'm so glad that our thinking about that has matured because some doctors or scientists didn't even believe that babies really had consciousness or like had the ability to feel pain. So I think that, yes, consciousness comes before that adoption of language and all these other sophisticated things. It's so fascinating. I think that they're dual, but they're really part of the same. For me as an artist, I tend to, to blend things. So I think that possibly as an artist, and I think that many artists or particularly writers, are very fascinated in both their conscious mind, but probably maybe even more so with their unconscious mind, because they spend so much time thinking, how does my brain work? Where do my ideas come from? There's so much up here. And so I'm a, as much fascinated with the unconscious where I feel like many of the creative ideas might at least get their start. Could you tell us a little mm. bit about that relationship with the, between the conscious and the unconscious mind? I've been always amazed when I heard people like writers who say, sometimes I write and the words just come out of me and I don't control them. And sometimes I'm even surprised by what my characters are doing while I'm writing the book. And I've always been fascinated by that. First of all, because as a scientist, that doesn't really happen to me. <laughs> you know, when I write a paper, I feel that I'm in control. Although if you think about it very deeply, many of our ideas just kind of come to us as if they are uninvited even. You take a shower and all of a sudden you say, oh, I have this idea or that idea. So I think it's our ability to control our own kind of flow uh, of mind is fairly limited. Sometimes you have thoughts and ideas that you didn't invite, going back to, to the example I gave before. And that's a big question. How does that happen? What in your brain allows you to have these seemingly spontaneous ideas? However, that's not the question that we study in the lab, unfortunately, because you think about it, it would be very hard to kind of construct an experiment where you are able to summon these uninvited ideas. What can I do? I can maybe put my participants in the shower and wait until they have this eureka moment. That probably wouldn't be a very feasible experiment. That's not what we are doing. So we are taking a step kind of down and saying, let's focus on way more basic conscious versus unconscious processes. For example, I can present you with a word that you don't see. And I can ask, do you still read or process the meaning of that word? Think about taking a word, embedding it within a very, very rapidly changing sequence of stimuli. So we present it within what we call masks, meaningless stimuli. Uh, and in between this long sequence of masks, I also put in a word that is meaningful. 
And the question is, and then I ask you, did you see any word? And you say, no, I haven't seen anything. But we know that some mechanism in your brain still process the meaning of that word. How do we know that? Because we can find activation in that brain area. For example, let's say that I present the word dog to you. And then I ask you to say whether the word cat is an animal or not, for example. You will be faster because dog and cat are related. So although you didn't consciously perceive the word dog, you unconsciously processed it and you've been affected by it. So your performance on another visible word has been affected or influenced by that word that you did not consciously perceive. So the type of unconscious processes that we study are way more basic. We ask, can you read a word? Can you process an emotion of a face, like a face expression that I present to you? Can you process a direction of an arrow pointing to the right or to the left? So this is still, I would argue, way less than coming up with an idea, a complicated idea. So I think that one of the challenges to our field is to also try and find experimental paradigms that would allow us not only to study these types of conscious and unconscious processes that are very interesting, but also the types that you were referring to as an artist, which I find fascinating. Yes. And please feel free in this conversation to explore areas that you might not explicitly focus on in your lab, because I imagine it's the groundwork. It's creating a solid foundation from which these uh, other areas can branch. And I think that it is important to note of the many animals that walk or fly or live in this earth. We are people of the book. And, you know, how much our reality and our perception and consciousness is really influenced from language. And it also shows at the same time, we can be so influenced and manipulated in whether it's elections or however we can, our minds can be prepared. I, I remember I lived in Ireland for a number of years and I overhearing these two women talking and they said, and sometimes in Ireland, they kind of speak poetically. It's not always the exact, they said, oh, don't worry. It's just a phrase he's going through. <laughs> I think she literally meant it was a phrase. It was sort of like he's latched onto this thing or she mispronounced it, but it's just shows, you know, it's true. You can actually influence your own reality reality, you might not be going through it, you know, exactly. But because you've been told you're this, or you're not good at this, or you'll never yeah. achieve that, or you, we can limit ourselves, or we can also psychologically program ourselves to have confidence, to achieve things, visualization. So what we do with language is very powerful. Can you go into that a bit? Yeah, I think it's language and knowledge in, in general. And, and there is an ongoing discussion about how much our basic perception is affected by language and knowledge on realms that typically are classified as cognition. So to what extent does our cognition affect perception itself? And I belong to those researchers who think that it, it does. And we have shown in the lab, for example, that when I present you with an image that violates your expectation. So for example, there is a person and he's drinking, but instead of drinking from a soda can, he's drinking from a potato. Then it takes you longer to recognize that potato, but and also your brain responds differently to an image that violates your semantic expectation about how the world should behave. Some other researchers, by the way, think that these are two different kind of modes of operation of the brain. We have perception and we have cognition and they don't interact. But I, as I said before, think that they do and that our cognition affects our perception and not only our perception. And now I'm going beyond what we study in the lab and I'm kind of speculating and extrapolating. So feel free to stop me if that feels too much 
of a speculation to you, but my own worldview is that this is not something that only happens in perception. So much like in perception, we are affected by what we expect to see. And sometimes we even perceive the expected as opposed to the world as it is. That also pertains to day life, to politics, to the reality you construct for yourself. So the brain, the way I think about it, is an amazing piece of machinery. And one of the things that it does best is to create these narratives into which we project ourselves. So it creates a model of the world. It creates a model of ourselves. Anil Seth, in his book, Being You, writes a lot about that. And I strongly agree with the way he frames it. And in that respect, we have expectations that we come, you know, to which we approach the situation. And then we collect evidence from the world. And the result, this meeting place between our expectation and the upcoming information is the reality that we create for ourselves. And that's why it could be different. And you know that I'm now in the middle of a very complicated situation here in Israel. And one thing that I've been uh, with an ongoing war that started with a brutal and barbaric attack by Hamas terrorists and is now turned into a full-fledged war with Israel. So I think this is a very good and sad example of how much to the extent that we build our own reality rather than just perceive it or just kind of be reflexive to it. And I think, and this is now even beyond the political situation that we are in, and I can only hope that it will end with as few casualties to both sides as possible. But I also hope that Hamas will be completely abolished because I think it's a very, very dangerous movement with as few innocent casualties as possible. But irrespective of that, I just hope that that people will remind themselves to always question the way they construct reality, try to do that all the time, not only with respect to politics, but with respect to science as well. We find results. The easiest thing is to say, ah, I found what I was looking for. But we always have to ask ourselves, are the results that we now see, are they genuine? Are these the facts as they are in the world? Or is this what I want to see or hope to see? And sometimes we tend to see what we want to see and not the things as they are. So it kind of, I, I found myself now, well, you know, having this conversation in the midst of everything that is going on here in the region is not easy. But given that you asked about reality and the way we construct it, I found myself drifted towards this ongoing situation, which has been nothing but unbearable for us. Yes, I can see that the way we register reality, it's shaped by our language, it's shaped by our history, it's shaped by, of course, in Israel and also the Palestinian experience being shaped by traumas. And so all this, we're projecting the past onto our future and, and whether we ever even experience ever the present is, is hard to say. We're always like anticipating or remembering, it seems. It might not be helpful. I want to see, of course, a, a an outcome that allows people to just enjoy their human rights and to live peacefully. Although I would have to say you would have more direct experience. I do fear that what if Hamas is eliminated, if that was possible, what replaces Hamas? You know, there's a vacuum that happens. We have to, I think, try to propose peaceful alternatives so that doesn't end up, you know, just continuing this cycle of violence. It's very upsetting. I would just respond by saying it is not in Israel's interests, in my opinion, to kill all Palestinians. That's not what Israel wants to do. We just want to live here. 
And this is a complicated region. They also want to live here. They live in Gaza, we live in Israel. The question is, can we find a way to live side by side? And I remind you that Israel has not been in Gaza for a very long time. We are not occupying Gaza. Hamas could have taken the money that was given to them and build shelters and take people out of the refugee camps and invest in civilians. That's not what they did. And I, I completely agree with you. We need at the end of the day, a way that would allow us to live side by side. And I really hope that the world and the international community would find a way to completely eliminate terrorism from the region and establish the conditions that would allow as you say, a peaceful solution. That's my hope. Yeah, but I, you know, yeah. I don't know why I even brought this. Up. Well, I no, know why I, I, this, I, I was curious about that because it, it does define yeah. the reality and the language and the labels. If one lives in the same territory but speaks a different language, it shapes the consciousness, the education system that we've grown up in. I was curious to learn. There's a Native American thinker, writer, Takoshin Horse, and he said in the Lakota Native American language, the Lakota language, it's composed of mainly verbs. It's a language of relationships. So it's not so many nouns and maybe people have names. It Then it affects the thinking because it's not about dogma and ownership and domination. It's very curious. And this can make you think about the land in different ways or the natural world. And that his belief is that we lose our relationship with the earth. We lose the language of the earth. So in their language, it's like I get the energy from the sun. I have you know my relationship with the trees. And it's one of being of a family. So I can also mm -hmm. see in the Native American instance, by not naming and claiming ownership, they also lost their land, their rights to their land. So it's very complicated, but I thought, well, that's a very liberating way of seeing the world, not this ownership. Yeah, and I think that generally speaking, doubting your own beliefs and trying to see things also from the other perspective is a very, very important mechanism. As I said, I try to stick to that. I admit that it's been harder in the last couple of weeks, especially seeing some of the protests in campuses in the US and in Europe manifestations. So that's hard. That's complicated for us, especially I think also for those who, you know, that in Israel we had protests against the government for about a year. So clearly some of us have very strong criticism on different aspects of the Israeli policy. However, these are all set aside when such horrific things happen. And I think that we as humanitarians worldwide should have a very clear and loud voice. We're so complicated. We're so good at spinning things in language, human beings. So I think that there's also the fear within Europe that we're all living through these times of tribalism. It is interesting. It is on message in a way because our consciousness and perception can be so written in our DNA as to form our perception and our view of the world, even before we're quite mature, you know, the belief systems that are handed down to us. So it's kind of two things. We have this interface. Some people have described it to me as an interface. I also interviewed Anil Seth you know, reality, what is reality? You know, is it this veil over our eyes that we interpret and we all mutually agreed upon illusion? I happen to think reality sort of at some point does exist. There are some facts and then there's a lot of interpretations. I agree with you. There are facts and we shouldn't allow opposition and prior beliefs to make us miss the facts. So here I'm completely with you. I think that every piece of evidence that we experience is a result of that meeting place between the physical reality of the world and our own beliefs and expectations and our mechanisms 
that then take this upcoming information and shape it into what we actually see. So it's not a complete hallucination. Anil calls it a controlled hallucination. It's still based on physical you know, events in the world, but it's also heavily biased by our own structure, our own build, our own mechanisms, our own cognitive system. And so now there's a number of futurists, they're very optimistic. They think that they can mm-hmm. upload their consciousness, their brain, their memories, who they are to the cloud and live forever. I'm not sure. I think that maybe what's most me, where I really am and who I am might not be downloadable or even recordable. You know, I think it's like the spaces between the breaths is somewhere. That's where I am. But what do you feel? I mean, is that possible? I don't think it's possible yet. Or are they just thinking metaphorically? So I am going to disappoint you and choose not to speculate here. So I think that there's something about consciousness studies. It's very, very tempting to make bold claims that go beyond what we actually know. So first, is it even possible to download your brain or to upload it into a cloud? Currently not. Will it be possible? I have no idea. Let's assume that it will. Would that thing be conscious? I also don't know. I don't think we have the tools to answer that question. Now, if you completely accept one of existing theories in the field, then some of them give you an answer. But I myself have not yet been convinced that any of the existing theories is strong enough to give the type of explanation for consciousness that we are all looking for. I think many of them are very promising. I think that at the end of the day, maybe it will be a combination of the different theories that we have. But until we have a good enough theory, I choose to refrain from making bold assertions about my consciousness being, surviving this kind of uploading to a cloud. Does it have to be embodied or not? I don't know. So I I prefer giving you strong answers about things that I know for sure than things that I don't. No, I don't think it's possible. I mean, you can sell chat GPT plus, you know, write me a novel by Philip K. Dick and see if it can reproduce his consciousness and in book form. Here I do have an answer. So if you ask me about ChatGPT, I think I can pretty confidently say that it is not conscious. Yes, that's important. We hear a lot of these questions now, and I don't mean to be going too much into technology, but it seems that we are just, we're growing so close to our machines that we think because we get a response, sounds human-like, you know, but it's really just a big search engine. But some people think like, what's AI doing? What will it do? Like it's alive. It's all (laughs) it for now. Even when I you know, send a query to ChatGPT. I always say, hi, can I please ask you something? And when I say, thank you, as if, you know, I'm kind of treating it as if it is a person that cares about whether I say hi or thank you, although I don't think that it does. And I think that here I had the the privilege to be a part of this group, uh, an interdisciplinary group of philosophers and neuroscientists and computer scientists It was led by Patrick Batlin and Robert Long. And we met and discussed and corresponded over the possibility of consciousness in AI. What we tried to do there was to adopt some of the insights that we did from the field of consciousness studies, relying on theories of consciousness that I mentioned before, and asking in humans, what are the critical functions that have been ascribed by these theories to conscious processing. And then our approach was to say, let's adopt computational functionalism as a working assumption, not as a truth. So when I say computational functionalism, the idea is that a system 
that implements the computations involved in specific functions that in humans or in conscious systems are related to consciousness, that system should also be treated as conscious. Some of the people in our group think that if you have functional computationalism equivalence, if you have a system that implements all these functions, all these computations that we deem critical for consciousness, I take the same agnostic approach as I took before. And I say, I don't know if it is conscious or not. I don't know if functions and computations are enough to give rise to consciousness. But I think that this is the most promising approach to tackle this question. Yes, you have some pre-existing reason to think that an AI system is conscious or not. For example, we mentioned Anil. He thinks that only biological systems, living systems are conscious. But unless you have such reason to think that they are conscious or not, I think that accepting this approach of computational functionalism is promising because it allows us to at least assess. So Tawe can say, give me an AI system. Let me check if it has the indicators that in this case, our group has put together as critical for consciousness. If it does have all these indicators, I would say that there is at least a good chance that it is either conscious or can develop consciousness. If it doesn't have these indicators, then the chances are lower. So for me, this allows me to estimate the probability of this system being conscious as opposed to not. So that's the exercise that we've been engaged in and I found extremely thought-provoking and I hope also promising. And with that exercise, current AI system, they might have one, two, three indicators out of the 14 that we came up with, but not all of them. It doesn't mean that they cannot have all of them. We didn't find any substantial barrier for coming up with such system, but currently they don't. And so I think that although it's very tempting to think about GP as conscious, it sounds sometimes like a human being. I don't think that it has any, it doesn't have the ability to experience. It manipulates, even irrespective, you can think about maybe consciousness without a limbic system, but you cannot think of consciousness without meaning and experience. And what GPT is doing is basically manipulating words in an incredibly brilliant way. It can do amazing things. Is there anyone home, so to speak? Is anyone experiencing or qualitatively, again, with the lack of a better word, experiencing the world? I don't think so. I don't think we have any indication for that. Yeah. And I think it also comes down to whether we might have an indication that there's a consciousness. And you say there's some people who have locked in syndrome. At mm -hmm. some point, you might have an individual might experience brain damage or lose an essential part of their brain or bodies that they are no longer themselves. As you say, nobody is home. And so I guess the real question is whether we have the right to pull the plug. We have today, the field of science has been able to put forth some pretty impressive tests for consciousness in humans. So you mentioned these disorders of consciousness, clinical situations where you have a person, he or she are unable to communicate, but with neural scans, we can see that their brain responds to instructions. And it's one of the most famous tests for that was suggested by Adrian Owen, where basically he asked patients to imagine themselves playing tennis or navigating in their home. And in healthy participants, we know that evokes a very specific neural activity in areas that are related to either motor performance or to navigation. And the same areas lit up in some of these patients, meaning that they were able to hear the instructions. They were able to imagine themselves in these situations. So that's one test. Another test developed by Marcello Massimini 
uses TMS, which is like a magnetic pulse, and then the response evoked by the brain in order to classify patients and even predicts if they are going to wake up from a coma or if they are now conscious or not. So these tools now allow us to give way better answers to the question who is conscious and when, but there is still a very long way to go. And another group in, that are a part of the CIFAR Brain, Mind, and Consciousness Program has been working exactly on that. And we have been discussing tests for consciousness, how we can develop good enough tests that would allow us to determine which people, which systems, which conditions involve consciousness and which are not. And I think that if we are ever able to do that, it would probably be one of the most important contributions of our field to society at large. Yes. And on the other side, and we've spoken a little bit about artists who have a heightened awareness or at least receptivity, or they think quite a lot about their own minds in dialogue with it as part of their profession. On the other side of that, we have certain spiritual traditions. I think of Buddhism and others where the practice of meditation, other physical practices, you know, singing and all these things can actually, these waves, we can change our consciousness. We can change our experience of time and even the chemical in our brain and in our body, we can heal ourselves through this. So what are your reflections on that and the, the mind-body problem that we've also have in the West? Yeah, the mind-body problem has been the main thing that I explored in my days in philosophy, because I also had some you know, small romance with philosophy as well. First, let me say, I think it's not a matter of empirical investigation. So I don't think that there is any experiment that could tell you if there is a soul that is non-physical. I think that at the end of the day, this is a philosophical, a metaphysical discussion that could be determined by arguments and not experiment. That's my own position. Within that field of views, I am a physicalist. So I think that our mind is magnificent and amazing and physical. I think it's fully determined by the brain. You can use any word you want in order to describe the relations, although these words matter. I, I, I don't think it is separate with, from the brain with respect to substance. I don't think there is another type of substance. But I don't think it makes it any less marvelous than it is. And I agree with you. We can change by changing the way we think. We can influence our body. Let's just think about a placebo. It's probably one of the most robust phenomena we know in medicine, right? I give you a fake pill and you start to feel better. Why? Because the way we perceive also ourselves is influenced by our priors, going back to what we discussed earlier in this conversation. So if you believe that you got some cure, that belief on its own has a, an effect on your immune system and on the state of the body. That, of course, doesn't mean that we can counteract every disease by thinking positively. I wish we could, but there is definitely a very strong bond between mind and body and brain. And I would argue that everything in that bond happens within the physical domain. Yes, this is a very specific branch, but you talk about people who have uh, lost their memory, say Alzheimer's or other forms of dementia. I feel like, you know, really part of who, who we are, like our biography is in our memory. And if when we lose that, it's very hard. At the same time, some people just live in their memory and that becomes another kind of incapacity. So what have you learned about uh, these different states? So I don't study clinical cases myself. But I heard about many cases as part of my work and conferences I attend. And I think that to me, it's also a lesson in, in humility. 
we understand that there are some things that are beyond our control and we understand that we need to treat our body well for it to treat us well but even if we do and even if we only eat healthy and sleep for many hours a day and exercise many things that I don't do well enough even under those circumstances we could get hurt injured suffer some brain injury or stroke or what have you and our world could change like that and the reality that we have would be completely different. And I think that's also one of my great fascinations with the brain, to understand how it creates this amazing universe for us and how in some cases, when it is damaged, this complex and rich experience diminish into something that is way narrower. So although I don't study that directly, I find it to be one of the most interesting questions that we as a society, we as scientists should answer. Yes, I think the mind is really a garden and it's full of so many wonders <laughs> we really don't understand. And so, of course, focusing on consciousness, it also tells you about how we learn. I mean, what does that tell you about like the way you were taught, the education you were brought up in, how being aware of our consciousness, how could we improve our educational models that adapt to different people's intelligences. I spoke yesterday with the creator of the multiple intelligences theory, Howard Gardner. So yeah, what does that tell you about how we can educate for the future so that people flourish and explore their creativity? So for me, it's going back to the very same point that I was trying to make before. I think that critical thinking, especially in our day and age, is probably one of the most important mechanisms that we should endure our children with, not to accept things as they are, not especially not to accept things as they seem in social media. Always question not only others, but also oneself. Try to take the other perspective. Try to question your beliefs. Ask yourself how many of those beliefs are genuine and how, how many have been shaped by past experiences, by manipulations, and so on and so forth. And I think that if we can build a society with critical thinkers, self-doubters, and modest people, then we would live in a better place. And I can only hope, you know, this message is heard. Yes. And I've heard you mention social media a few times. So I yeah. something that you're concerned about, it concerns me too, with the particularly young people and their neuroplasticity being exposed to it at younger and younger ages. Could you go into that and what you feel yeah, was responsible use and, and what your hopes are for that? Yeah. yeah, I think we live on the one hand, very exciting times with technological development. But on the other hand, we should also be careful. And I've seen studies showing the effects of screen time on brain development that are worrisome, in my opinion. So I, as a mother, continuously engaged in uh, a battle to minimize screen time for my own children, not always successfully, because I also understand that the world that we live in requires a lot of screen time. I think that social media in particular, and again, I can't take this interview out of context. We, we are having it while I am continuously exposed to hatred in social media. Again, not only from one side, from all sides. People are scared, people are afraid, people are angry, and that finds its way into social media. And I can tell you that I personally, there have been several times in this past few weeks where I read things on, now it's called X, 
Twitter. And I was horrified by what I saw, horrified and disappointed and saddened. So did I, you know, disconnect? No, also a part of the system. But I also want to raise a critical voice also with respect to that. We need to be a constant editors. That's the other thing. And the, with the decline of the fourth yes. estate and long form journalism, oh, we have to be vigilant. It's crucial. I'm very nostalgic for the old newspapers and trusted sources. Yeah, I also appreciate that every generation when there is a technological advancement, they also always get nostalgic. So when television came in, people were nostalgic about the radio. When radio came in, they wanted newspapers. When newspaper came in, they wanted books and so on. So I'm also aware that we have the tendency to fear advancements. But I also feel that in this case, we have quite good reasons to be afraid of some of the things that are happening. And so again, critical thinking, that would be my recommendation for that as well. Thinking about what Leah talked about, it is very empowering to see how formidable our brains can actually be. It can be easy to feel overstimulated with the increase of social media and the hurdles of our daily life. Looking more into our unconscious mind and seeing how our thought patterns can dictate our reality, this felt to me like a sense of taking my power back. She mentioned how one belief can have a direct effect on our own immune system and the state of our body. Reinforcement of positive feedback loops are even being used by professional athletes today. Additionally, with the uprising in AI machines and search engines, this constitutes a whole other way of not accessing our creative sides of our brain. ChatGPT can plan your whole day with the click of a button. Going back to what Liad said, AI machines lack a sense of experience that a human being can provide. Our best and our worst moments shape us in our brain, allowing us to put meaning back into our life. I think it's important for the new generation to hold on to the sense of nostalgia Mia talked about, allowing new technology to help aid our life without overtaking it. Now, back to the interview. One day we'll be nostalgic for Twitter or X. We'll say, oh, those were the days when we had 32 characters. Now it's just emojis. And so we're going back to cave drawings. Um, the funny question, but I do want to know this. I, I feel yeah. I have a fair understanding of how dreams work for everyone else. So my question, I want to know how my dreams work. I want to know why every night I have so many, many dreams. <laughs> I'm very grateful. They're very Last night I was flamenco dancing in an art gallery in New York with commentator friendly it's it's a lot what happens what's go what's going on here yeah i i wish i knew uh, i'm not a sleep researcher so i cannot give you again studies from my own lab but we do know that some of the things that you know when you dream sometimes some of the events in the external world find their way into your dreams and sometimes and this is one of the theories that i've read, people consider dreams to be some kind of an inner rehearsal towards scenarios that you might experience. And you kind of train yourself how you should respond. Some people say that don't try to find meaning in dreams. These are just kind of meaningless patterns that emerge and we shouldn't try to explain them. I don't know, but I do think with respect to consciousness that this is one of the most intriguing cases where you literally create your own conscious experience now from scratch. So you build a world that is completely immersive. You believe that you're in it. Did you ever have a lucid dream? I just yeah. have so many dreams. I don't know. When you are dreaming, are you aware that you're in a dream? Sometimes. It's usually they're just so eventful that I may even wake up 
do something. I know I'm a dream, but I just have to solve it in order to get to that. And then you managed to go back to your own dream. Even though I knew, I'm like, yeah, I have to see how this ends. It's like a movie. I can't like leave in the middle. Yeah, I always wanted to be a lucid dreamer. I'm not. I only had one experience where this happened to me and I found it completely mind-blowing where I realized that I'm in a dream and I even told myself, ah, so this is how it feels like. So I think that dreams are incredible and also research-wise they give you an outstanding opportunity to study the brain in its purity so to speak devoid of external stimulation creating its own reality so yeah I like you I cannot wait for someone to find the answer about why we dream and how does it work so I, th- I think it is fascinating and just lastly there is the science and then there's the science communication and we're living in this decade with the need for transformation on many fronts but on climate change is something how do we mitigate climate change so I know that you have this great grounding also in the humanities with the philosophy so what for you is the importance of storytelling and the environmental humanities and what would you like young people to know preserve and remember Wow, that's a big question. <laughs> so I think first of all, I would like young people to keep an open mind and to be able to extract information from multiple sources and gain interdisciplinary training. So if you are a computer scientist, read philosophy. If you are a philosopher, read neuroscience or whatever is interesting for you. And don't be ignorant. It's important for climate change. It's important for politics, for sure. It's important for science. And it's important for who you are. So my kind of aspiration, if I could have some genie came and gave me one wish, well, I, I would like three. So after I got my loved ones to be healthy and happy, that's the most important thing. The next wish for me would be to continue learning throughout my life. And if I can also teach, that's a plus. But this ability to evolve and chase the truth, irrespective of which type of truth you're interested in, which field, what's the burning question that you want to answer. But find it yourself. Don't believe others. Build yourself on the knowledge of others. Learn from others. But develop this kind of inner sense of again, critical thinking that allows you to say, this is what I believe in, this is what I don't, and leave that to your children as well. So you, you, you spoke about past and present and future. I hope our future generations will build on, will cherish knowledge and kind of generate new knowledge, but qualitative knowledge, and just allow us to know more about ourselves, about the world we live in, about other human beings, and be respectful of others be kind. You've given us many things to think about and to build upon. So thank you, Dr. Lied Mudrik, for helping us understand consciousness, how language, culture, and history influence our perception and behavior. By helping us understand our minds and consciousness, we can create positive futures. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Thank you very much for having me. The Creative Process and One Planet podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews producers on this episode were Sam Myers and Faith Huang. The Creative Process is produced by Mia Funk. Additional production support by Sophie Garnier. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. 
We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening. Thank you.